Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. I'm your host, Brett King. This week, we're going to dive into the changing elements of world payments. Now, I know there's a lot going on in respect to the Ukraine conflict and sanctions and so forth. That's not the objective of this show. We have another uh, segment coming up uh, for that. We're really looking at some of the global trends in terms of payments behavior. And to assist us on this, we've invited uh, Jim Johnson onto the show. Jim is the president, Merchant Solutions WorldPay. Um, As you know, WorldPay is an FIS uh, business and FIS is a uh, a sponsor and partner of uh, Breaking Banks. They've just released their annual global payments report. And you know, we are going to jump into that. It's actually the seventh annual global payments report in the payment space. I'm sure if you're in that space, you've heard of this report uh, because it is sort of um, considered, uh, you know, one of the mainstays in the space. Um, and it was, uh, it, it's uh, going through the process of release uh, right now. So, um, Jim, welcome to Breaking Banks. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, um, you, your team runs this uh, this report. Uh, can you tell me, um, you know, how long does it take to sort of put this together? I mean, this report in itself is 156 pages, which is pretty impressive. But, you know, um, is this take most of the year to put together or is it uh, compressed into a shorter time frame? You know, uh, it's a year-long process, right? Uh, kind of as soon as we issue the report, we start on the next year. As you've mentioned, you know, it's year seven and really, you know, we examine the, the goal of the report is really diving into current and a projection of future payment trends across 41 countries. So we're, you know, we're, we're interviewing and surveying 45,000 consumers across, uh, across the 41 countries. We're kind of combining that with, you know, 40 billion merchant transactions we have uh, processed internally here, you know, across 300 different payment types, uh, 146 countries, 126 currencies. So kind of putting that all together in a, in an analytics model, um, you know, first third of the year kind of takes uh, the interviewing, the data collecting, uh, then you kind of, you go through a third of the year synthesizing it with our own data, then you start putting observations together and then you start fine tuning. By the time you're done, a year's passed. So I think you're you're spot on with your timeline. Absolutely. So, um, you know, obviously a lot is happening in the payment space right now, even before, you know, we, we factor in the, the recent uh, troubles in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, you know, this, this trend, really the biggest changes we've seen in, in payments activity as, uh, as a result of the pandemic. And of course, um, this is really the first report that gives us a glimpse into how those couple of years of the pandemic really affected the world of payments. 
On a global basis, um, you know, what stands out to you as the clear trends that emerged over the period of the pandemic? Yeah, you know, probably no surprise to anybody. E-commerce is clearly been the dominant player. It's showing, showing no signs of slowing down. We're going to continue to keep pressing forward, at least through 225 when our, our study kind of looks out to that horizon. Um, additionally, consumer payment preferences begin to shift a little bit. You've mentioned in, in your opening, buy now, pay later. Um, while it's starting from a smaller transaction base, it's uh, projected to continue to be the world's fastest growing payment method. One surprising thing coming out of the pandemic is uh, the point of sales making a strong comeback, right? Um, but when people are, are transacting at the point of sale, they're kind of choosing digital form factor, right? Their, their, their phone predominantly over a plastic or cash. And then, um, you know, lastly, buy now, pay later that we mentioned before, it's not just an online phenomena. During the pandemic, a lot of merchants upgraded their hardware. They're now able to kind of present, procure, and deliver buy now, pay later at the point of sale. Particularly, you know, in Europe, Australia, they're the big, they've been the big early adopters of that. But North America is starting to move pretty pretty well on that front uh, as well. I'd say those are the big things. The only other thing uh, that I might mention is there's so much uh, innovation, technology, changes to the supply chain. Fintechs and regulators really need to collaborate, right? Um, there's this rapid shift. We need to just make sure we have uh, frameworks in place where we can continue to govern our ecosystem well. Absolutely. Uh, in respect to buy now, pay later, yeah. um, uh, specifically, is there any discernible impact to um, credit card utilization uh, that's evident in um, the take up of buy now, pay later as yet? You know, the what, what I would say is there's not a big change. During the pandemic, credit got hit pretty pretty good there. But as, as we recover, we're seeing uh, on our front recovery to pre-pandemic levels. Now, um, today, you know, we're talking during the pandemic, buy now, pay later went from 1%, you know, of, of global, you know, volume to, to three, three and a half percent during that time. So that you're not talking about a, a big base. And oftentimes, you know, with the whether it's Klarna, Farm, Afterpay, you know, you, you name the player, a lot of times credits tied into that to a degree too. So um, it's a it's an interesting parallel. But to date, uh, we haven't seen credit take a big hit. One of the uh, things that um, I was interested in the report is, you know, we we've talked to, about this a lot on the show. Is the incredible growth behind the Chinese mobile payments yeah. uh, schemes, um, Alipay and Tencent WeChat Pay. Now, that's clearly evident in terms of e-commerce payment methodology. The report shows that digital mobile wallets now account for 49% of e-commerce uh, payment methods. You expect that to go to 53% in 2025. Um, if we combine um, 
credit card and debit cards and prepaid cards. We're talking about uh, 35% in comparison for e-commerce. But on a POS basis, you still see credit cards and debit cards, plastic, um, you know, uh, beating out uh, digital mobile wallets. But by 2025, it's going to be pretty neck and neck, according to the report. Um, you know, in terms of this trend globally, the move to mobile wallets, you're obviously going to talk about the metaverse and, and the impact of, uh, you know, wallets and crypto in, in a few moments. But in terms of that broader trend, how well do you think the industry is prepared for this modality shift, um, you know, that you've talked about moving away from plastic to mobile? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's well, uh, it, it's in good shape, right? You know, with you know the Apple, the Apple Wallet, uh, that kind of I don't know came out several years back. I think the industry's slowly been moving there. I think uh, during the pandemic, whether it was you know uh, just turning kind of the 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 feature on on the point of sale or or changing out what was going on there combined with you know the safety risks on the consumer side of of truly being contactless i think uh, adoption went heavy i think you're going to see um you know and you're you're already starting to see i think people are people are getting comfortable with it right uh and i think the what's taking place in 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 asia i think uh additionally if you look globally brett the there's a lot of capability around QR code, right? So um, people who have who have a phone and traditionally have only been able to kind of maybe transact online, the ability in store to kind of read QR code is giving a lot more consumers more access than they had before. So I think we're I think we're pretty well suited. Obviously, um, our our fraud capabilities have been there, you know, from the beginning, really truly being kind of driven by a lot of the, the mandate and work the, the big brands have put place uh, around their, their global rails. So I think we're in good shape. I think you're going to continue to see the mobile wallets uh, become more prevalent uh, at the physical point of sale. And, um, you know, 2025 and beyond, we probably don't look a whole lot different than Asia. I, I think you're right. Um in in terms of that that shift, you know, we just explored it a little bit, but um, obviously during the pandemic, e-com um, ballooned, um, and you know, use of wallets attests that obviously, you know, there was some correlation. But in respect to this return to the store, um, you 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 do focus on this in the report. But it's also fairly clear from the report, and I'll get your perspective on this, that we're, we're not going back to normal either. The return to the store, while there has been an uptick in, in uh, pause transactions, certainly there's a behavioural shift that's fairly clear to more online um, you know, and digital engagement. Would, would, would you say that's a fair interpretation of the report? Yeah, uh, 100%, right? The... Um... I will tell you the return to the the point of sale uh, was more drastic than I thought, but I, I honestly think it was probably driven pretty heavily through some supply chain headwinds, right? Um, whether you know it was Christmas time and you know I'm 
trying to to buy my wife an an iPad or or whatever it might be. And, you know, online, it tells me I'm going to get it in March and that's just not going to do. So I I get in my car and, and head out to a retail outlet to try to buy it. Right. I think there's a lot of that that probably factored into it. Um, secondly, I think um, the the technology that advanced during the COVID period related to omnichannel, so the ability to kind of order ahead, um, do curbside pickup, et cetera, that capability got people, um, they might have done part of the transaction at home and finished it in the store, right? So that's a situation where you're coming back, but it doesn't look the same, right? And so I think there's a lot of different, um, a lot of different things. I think people, you know, people, people went back to the grocery store, right? I don't know if they were, if, uh, you know, Uber Eats wasn't getting their order right or not, but we saw, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic, a, a lot of people going back into the store, not doing everything. I'll tell you, uh, my wife is still doing all her shopping here at home uh, related to the groceries. And uh, that's just fine with me. But I think there's no set answer. What we do know is people came back to the point of sale pretty heavily, but they did come back differently. And I think that was accelerated a bit due to some of the supply chain stuff. Now, I did notice that um, Asia features heavily in respect to the mobile wallet stuff. You show currently in terms of e-commerce method that about 70% of e-commerce transactions, 69% to be exact, uh, are digital mobile wallet, 72% projected in 2025. Um, which is a fairly small increase given the uh, the traction we've already seen. And credit cards and debit cards just total around 20, 20% um, there, um, you know, in, in Asia. So obviously Asia is leading the charge in terms of the this mobile um, wallet ecosystem. Um, from that perspective, do you see that Asia has some significant advantages in terms of, you know, the payments infrastructure now because of their their mobile wallet readiness? No, I don't think it's I don't think it's an advantage. I think it's cultural, right? Um, they they just drove to that methodology very early. Uh, they drove that type of thinking at the point of sale. I think they're they're. Alipay and WeChat Pay um, kind of infrastructure drove a lot of that as well. And I think, you know, as you see, you know, uh, Google, Apple, the big players on our side starting to dive into payments, I think you're going to see similar aggressive cultural shifts in us uh, using technology to make payments. What, what do you think about the, uh, in terms of merchant response to um, digital wallets uh, globally, um, you know, uh, um, with the wallet, the wallets infrastructure we talk about in China uh, in, in particular, um, you know, and Alipay and Tencent, yeah. WeChat Pay, um, not, not so much for, um, you know, Paytm, which in, in India, which has a different model, but Alipay and Tencent, WeChat Pay have significantly lower rails fees. Um, do you see that as, uh, you know, part of the reason um, for higher adoption of mobile wallets uh, yeah. in, in Asia? It's a, it's a great question. Well, you know, I think... I think 
mobile wallets, it takes a seminal event to change con- consumer behavior, right? You you have to give the consumer a reason to use that mo- mobile wallet rather than their plastic. And I think the pandemic did it. And it did it not just at the point of sale. It did it on, on e-commerce as well. At the point of sale, obviously, the a new motivation emerged in the form of safety, right? Health, right? I don't want to... I don't want to touch things, right? But on the e-commerce side, you're now sitting at home doing more transactions. And where before you might have been doing a couple of transactions a week, a little friction didn't bother you. But when you start doing multiple transactions a day, your tolerance for friction in the transaction process goes away. And so for me, if a, a merchant's not accepting Apple Pay or whatever wallet I have, I'm not shopping there online, right? And so sure. I think those two things are were, the, were what it took in the United States for people to kind of start to change their behavior. And as we know, it takes 60 days to create a habit and we've created habits, right? We, yeah. had, we had 720 days. No, I, I do uh, see that, um, you know, on uh, page 31 of the report, you do say, you know, the, the big call out is that di- digital wallets will take the lead over credit cards in the US in 2022, this yeah. year. That's yeah. a, that is a big cultural change in the United it States. It is. It's huge. It's uh, These wallets were going nowhere pre-pandemic. They just weren't. You couldn't use them anywhere. And even online, um People were preferring to type in their credit card numbers and, you know, go the long route. So let's jump into crypto and CBDC. Um, We were watching with great interest uh, as China used, they let the CBDC out for a run during the Beijing Olympics. So locals were able to, uh, you know, local athletes and some foreign athletes, of course, some opted not to use the ECMY wallet um, uh, for the Olympics, but... We did. So we saw for the first time the trial of the CBDC wallets. Obviously, right now, there's a bit of a return to crypto. Um, it, you know, we had a bit of a crypto crash earlier, but, uh, you know, crypto still performed very strongly during the pandemic generally. And we, we're seeing right now a, a, a resurgence in interest in crypto. So given that, um, explain how sort of the, the move to digital wallets is also critical for um, crypto custody and CBDC implementation and things like this in this emerging sort of 21st century digital payments landscape. Yeah, and admittedly, you know, I'm kind of learning every day, getting my arms around this. What I'll tell you is at my company, um, we've kind of been in the crypto space here eight, eight years or so, started with, with, with Coinbase, but we, we, you know, the transactions we perform today are turning fiat into crypto assets on the wallet, right? So uh, buying, buying, buying crypto with a card. Now, as you start getting into, you know, central bank digital currencies and actually, you know, an evolution into buying with crypto, I think what you'll see is that these big wallets kind of offer a medium to, to kind of start govern, governing this activity and creating some consistency and evolution of the playing field. 
I don't know how exactly that will play out, but I think those concepts are important, much like the big brands kind of created the environment uh, back in the day, right? On what was uh, acceptable on the rails and not acceptable on the rails. I think you're going to, you're probably going to see a similar type evolution. I don't know if that's a great comparison or, you know, compare and contrast, but I think uh, at least it gives you an idea how I see things evolving here a bit. Uh, from a crypto custody perspective, uh, you know, we just saw NYDIG take in a billion dollars of uh, fu funding in December. That's sort of the biggest crypto custody deal globally right now. Um, is, is this something that WorldPay, based on, you know, what we've seen in the report, is increasingly, you know, interesting? I know you guys also have a partnership with NYDIG, but on a global yeah. basis, is this something you're watching, the crypto custody space? Yeah, I think we'll we'll partner as technology providers to customers who are going to take custody, right? I don't think we're going to be a custody player. I think that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, um, um, you 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 guys tend to be agnostic as to the correct the the, the value store the ecosystem, right? You're just yeah. looking at the more the rails. Um, in terms of um, the CBDC side of things. The US has been fairly slow on this. Um, the EU has obviously a CBDC trial going on now. We've we've seen Bank of Thailand and, and you know, a bunch of other um, you know others announce uh, um, their intention to roll out CBDC trials. But in the US, it's been a bit slower. Um, you know, we just saw the Fed put out a report, um, you know, two weeks ago. The industry's uh, response to that report has been fairly pro poor. The commentators in the CBDC space have said it was fairly unsophisticated. So it looks like the US is some, um, you know, time away from, uh, you know, from really adopting that. But how, do, how does, um, you know, a CBDC or a digital fiat play into the mix of emerging payment systems, do you think? I think it's coming, number one. I think kind of the volatility going on in the world, that's probably going to impact it a bit. But I think uh, it's absolutely going to be another another payment type, another another rail, so to speak, right? One thing I kind of equated to a little bit is think of loyalty points, right? Uh, loyalty points is a form of currency and, you know, you're increasingly able to use loyalty points from, from one program to, to buy things in other places. And it's really become more like a currency. I think, I think you're going to see some, a, a similar path with crypto and it's going to start with who's going to be kind of that, that first merchant to start accepting it for payment. In, in the bank 4.0 stuff that I've done, I talk a lot about embedded finance and embedded banking. And yeah. buy, now, buy yeah. now, pay later is, um, you know, obviously one of these contextual credit scenarios that we've seen emerge. Um, you, you guys talk about embedded finance as well in, in the report. Um, we do. You know, what are some of the other applications in terms of based on like a geolocation trigger or behavioral trigger or, um, you know, uh, some sort of context where you see mobile wallets um, sort of adapting in terms of these contextual or embedded finance experiences? Yeah, what, what I would tell you is what's, what's very important to us is, you know, we have over a million clients 
who are trying to run businesses and provide more and more value to their consumers and provide greater uh, and more delightful experiences for their consumers. Part of that journey is being able to, if you're a, a small business, FIS just not provide you the ability for your customers to, to pay for their massage or their dry cleaning or whatever, whatever the case may be. We want to be able to also offer that dry cleaner alone, right? Uh, maybe offer them the ability to, you know, do payroll um, and provide a lot of different capabilities that not only help them run their business, but that they probably can also offer to their customer base. So from our standpoint, um, integrating our services, right? Whether it be a loan or maybe replacing a card or giving out a new bank account, uh, having, you know, kind of friendly APIs that integrate well into software and are easily consumed by these super apps is uh, kind of a, a big motivation for us. So looking out, um, you know, you, the report looks out to 2025, but if we could look out to 2030, a few more years, um, what would you, what, where would you say we're at in terms of things like CBDCs or mobile wallets and, um, you know, uh, you know these, these types of moves in particular? Well, I tend to think CBDC is going to happen. Um, I think... I think there's momentum there. I'm not, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the the expert in the industry related to it. But I think my my thesis is grounded on hey, e-commerce continues to evolve. There's a lot of uh, very big players in this space who are who are looking to solve problems, and I think governments are very open to creating kind of a a digital currency that um, has you know, a bit more solid backing so it can be uh, more palatable to the people who are selling goods and taking it as payment. Um, I think the, the one thing for me, I think as we look 10 years out, I just think, I, I think we're gonna be, my company is gonna be processing a lot of transactions that originate in the metaverse. I think we're going to be do, we're going to be processing as many purchases of people on their Oculus or in kind of their uh, digital digital reality world, buying Air Jordans for their avatar or a you know uh, a case for their virtual Apple Apple phone. So we won't be swiping virtual credit cards in the metaverse, right? It's going to be just digital. No, we'll, 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 we'll be we'll, people will be buying uh, virtual yes. Apple phones. Yeah, and your wallet, your you know, so it'll be a cloud wallet. You know, your wallet will be something that can traverse your mobile, your voice experience at home, your in-car experience for for charging your electricity, and of course in the metaverse. So, um, Jim, thanks for joining us. Where can um, people get a copy of the Global Payments Report? Yeah, I think uh, you go to the FIS uh, website. I think there's you know uh, you'll see hints towards getting it and. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a report we're really proud of, right? We, it's become kind of a industry reference book and uh, we're excited to, to present it out here for 2022. 
And uh, for you personally, um, how do you keep up with uh, innovations happening in the payment space? Well, I watch, you know, I watch this podcast every week to start the, uh, um, but, you know, I, I'm just kind of a big reader. I do. I have some, some people I like to, to follow on Twitter. We have a great PR department within my organization that kind of feeds my appetite uh, for information, but I kind of just do a, a lot of rummaging through information on my, on my spare time as well. Awesome. Well, Jim Johnson, um, thank you for joining us on Breaking Banks today. Um, Jim Johnson is the president of Merchant Solutions World Pay from FAS. Check out the Global Payments Report from FAS. Um, it's, uh, it's a fantastic read and confirms a lot of what we've been talking about during the pandemic and even before in terms of uh, wallet adoption and the changes around e-commerce and, and you know at the, at the point of sale, particularly around contextual payments, real-time payments and embedded finance. That's it for this segment. Uh, We'll be right back after a a quick word from our sponsors. This show is sponsored by FIS. If you want to reach the future faster, you must start early. For those who do, FIS brings you RISE. Insightful articles, best practices, research and intelligence to help you stay current and rise above the competition. Subscribe at fisglobal.com slash insights or follow FIS Global on social media to get notified as soon as content is released. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. If you work for a bank or a credit union, you already know that this strategic planning and budgeting season is filled with more uncertainty and risk than ever before. And the answers you need aren't in your boardroom or in your spreadsheet models. At Alloy Labs, we've worked with some of the most innovative financial institutions in the world. And our industry-leading tools and frameworks can help you create clarity out of chaos and prioritize what are always limited resources to help you defend and extend your existing business while you're creating viable options for the future. From intensive corporate programs custom-tailored for your situation and your team to bite-sized digital workshops where you can learn from multiple bank perspectives, We can help you forge ideas into results quickly and cheaply. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Times of great change are also times of great opportunity, and the time to act is now. AlloyLabs.com. Welcome back. Uh, For this half of the show, we have a a longtime friend of the show, a regular. She sat in the hosting chair many times, and uh, that is Penny Crosman from uh, American Banker. Penny, welcome back to Breaking Banks. Thanks so much for having me. Great to see you. Great to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. You you guys have started your own podcast, of course, uh, over the last couple of years. How's that been going? Because you've been sitting on on the chair there hosting that, right? Pretty well. We have two. One is called American Banker Podcast. It's a very straightforward. Uh, we interview people. Um, and then the other one is called Bank Shot. That's hosted by John Heltman, who's now our Washington Bureau Chief. And he does more of a narrative style podcast where it's it's a, he comes up with a basically a story idea, of inter, mm. you know, inter, intercepts with interviews with different people. Um, you know, and it's much more of a, a, a story kind of format. So uh, those, they, they've been doing pretty well. I think they're, you know, there are a, a core group of people who like to listen during their commute and, you know, catch up with, with uh, 
you know, bank and fintech topics with us. So um, yeah, it's, it's a nice format, you know. Awesome. Yeah, I think that story sort of format is becoming um, more popular for podcasts. You know, I think Serial and others sort of started it in terms of that or you know, This American Life, Planet Money. A lot of them have followed that. Obviously, the production values tend to be much higher and they're more expensive <laughs> Very much so. and a lot more planning goes into it. We're just doing one now, which you're going to hear in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, um, on the uh, the launch of the ECMY, um, the E1 wallet in China and sort of what that means. Um, and we've brought in a ton of talent from around. We've had man on the street interviews in China. It just takes a lot more preparation. Whereas, you know, um, often with these sorts of episodes, we can just sort of sit down, have a few questions um, and jump straight into the conversation. But those, those story format tend to be a much, a much more uh, work, but yeah, great, great content, obviously. I wanted to talk with you about the Ukraine situation. Um, obviously, um, you know, we, we've seen from a, a perspective of um, financial inclusion as one aspect where we see a bunch of fintechs who've tried to make some movement in, in terms of lower income and giving people access to financial services. Um, you know, we've talked on this show and I know you've, you've talked about this at American bank on new bank success with, with that. Um, we bank in, in, you know, Shenzhen is another example of that, but um, you know, have you seen examples of any fintechs that have sort of stepped into uh, the breach here and, um, you know, figuratively speaking in terms of helping the Ukrainian people at this uh, at this time? There have been a lot of efforts. And from the very beginning, um, one, a, a lot of fintechs are helping with donations to Ukrainians. Um, I think one interesting example is Revolut, where well, one of the co-founders of Revolut uh, is Ukrainian, and they have raised more than $10 million to the, uh, I believe, the, the Red Cross Ukraine, and they have been matching donations to the Red Cross from their from their customers and pe- people in a lot of different countries. Um, there's a group of fintechs that are called fintechs for Ukraine, and these are European fintechs, and they are also uh, raising money uh, for Save the Children's Ukraine appeal. There's a company called WhitePay that has raised about two million of stablecoin tether to uh, help Ukrainians. So um, there's definitely been a lot of that. But one of the things that I think is the most interesting, uh, from my point of view, is a lot of fintechs actually have employees in the Ukraine. There's about 190,000 tech workers in the Ukraine. And uh, one company is called Upswat, and they were originally founded in Ukraine. Now their main office is in uh, North Carolina, but they still have 40 employees in Ukraine. And they tried to evacuate as many people as they could, you know, that the, the uh, CEO, Dmitry Narenko, like talked with each one and said, you know, can, can you, can you evacuate? We'll help you. Um, the company has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars evacuating people out of Ukraine and mostly into the country of Georgia, where um, they're actually all living in the same apartment complex. Uh, but for the ones who have stayed, it's been kind of, um, you know, heartbreaking because, you know, some of them are staying because they have elderly parents 
some have elderly pets, um, some want to stay and fight. And, uh, you know, some waited too long because, you know, men between 18 and 60 can't leave now. So um, they may just be working there, but um, they they are, are there for the for the interim. Um, so, you know, that that's really been the most challenging thing for these fintechs. But um, in the case of Upswat, in the case of of many of these fintechs, they are raising money. And uh, and also uh, a lot of these fintechs have made payments to Ukrainian banks free. So if people want to donate or help relatives or help friends, they don't have to um, pay any sort of transfer fee. So um, Revolut did that. Also Wise and Remitly have done that. Yeah, I saw that. Santander Bank as well um, did that. So... So I would say there's there's a fair amount of of uh, collective you know effort to to try to do what you can. It's, of course, we're limited in, in how much anybody can do, unless you're gonna you know unless you're an army veteran and you're gonna volunteer to go fight. You know the rest of us are kind of sending money and prayers and yeah. I saw an interesting, um, you know, there's an interesting trend in terms of Airbnb and Etsy. I've seen people um, booking Airbnb properties in Ukraine and buying items on Etsy, but doing so with no expectation that obviously they're going to go and stay there. But that's their sort of tried and true mechanisms, people that rented their places and you know were um, you know makers on Etsy and so forth they have already access to those platforms to get uh, get money through so that's how some people have, uh, have have sort of got their donations into the country um through those mechanisms which is sort of an interesting adaptation of those existing channels i did um, uh, i was reached out to by um, and I, I'm probably going to mess this up. You know what I'm like with names, but Rostis, Rostislav Diuk, who is the um, chairman of the board of the Ukrainian Association of FinTech and Innovation Companies. So this is fintechua.org. And uh, he was asking FinTech um, and foreign brands to, um, you know, uh, amplify the message basically to brands working in Russia to please, you know, s- stop supporting the Russian economy. So, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, the FinTech Association as a whole there, um, obviously this is a pretty interesting time. How do you sort of adapt to, to this? You know, we know that there's a huge developer community in the Ukraine, as you said, that, um, you know, has been supporting fintechs around the world. Um, you know, prior to this, I think I was probably get, getting two or three outsourcing um, offers a, a week from Ukrainian companies pitching wow. pitching to me through um, either through LinkedIn or um, via um, you know, email to, to move in in particular, because, you know, obviously move in uses uh, outsourced uh, resources from time to time. Ironically, we were introduced to a group of Ukrainian um, technologists that, that we've used from time to time for move We were introduced to them through Spurbank, through our Russian investors. Um, and so, you know, it, it seems ironic now. That but, does seem uh, ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but functionally, um, you know, uh, where do you think, 
it, it, obviously in terms of getting donations into the country and so forth, there's there's elements there. But um, you know, what what else do you think fintechs could do apart from just sort of channeling donations in into the country? Well, as you mentioned, some have uh, begun refusing to uh, work in Russia. There are a number of fintechs and fintech payment companies, especially that are supporting the um, the, the sanctions on Russia and the you know refusing to um, do business in Russia. You know, and, and I mean, also sort of ironically, I'm sure you read that Visa, Mastercards. Uh, bans in Russia kind of backfired because the local uh, Russian payment processor continued to function. So it was really the journalists and uh, anti-war people trying to leave Russia who were affected by that. So they left the country and then their cards wouldn't work. So that, uh, you know, and I think we'll see more of that kind of backfiring of sanctions. Um, but, you know, another thing, as you said, is is just continuing to support those who are willing to keep working, a lot of a lot of programmers are still working in in the yeah. major cities, and you know, so so fintechs are paying them and paying taxes to the country, and um, in some cases, like in Upsquat's case, it's it's given extra cash to those employees and trying to. Um, Revolut has given its employees an app that helps them understand, you know, what's happening and where they might go to to be safe. Um, so, you know, just kind of supporting those people who are, you know, bravely staying and continuing to work, I think is, is one thing. Um, and I guess, you know, helping the, the refugees to kind of pull their lives back together might be a way that fintechs can help. Um, you know, I know some of the payment companies are trying to help Ukrainians make sure they get access to their uh, funds and can, you know, pay for things that they need to pay for. Um, and yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, you know, I hadn't thought of some of that, but it's uh, it's key. It's interesting to see Russia's response to the MasterCard and Visa sanctions, um, particularly the now adoption of union pay in, in that economy. So um, as of three days ago, um, Russell Hosbank, Pochter Bank, Bank St. Petersburg, Promsivyazbank, Russia Regional Development Bank, Primsotsbank, Zenit, Sovcom Bank and others have already begun issuing cards on the union pay network. The, um, the Russian Central Bank said uh, it planned to issue cards uh, using, uh, or many of their member banks uh, plan to issue cards using uh, union pay. Um, I know, you know, as you know, I spend half of my time out of uh, our residence in, in Thailand, um, you know, working, working in Asia. Um, and um, I know uh, there's a lot of Russian expats in countries like Thailand that suddenly were left without access to cash. So issuing them a new card with a union pay, you know, chip um, seems to be, um, you know, one way the Russian banks are responding to the sanctions. I don't think there's anything that, you know, fintechs could necessarily do to prevent that from sort of taking off. But there is some, you know, there is some very real pressure on China in respect to this. But, um, you know, from China's perspective, what have they got to lose? You know, union pay... We've got 
in, incredible progress that's been made with union pay, particularly union pay 2.0, where that you know with the inclusion of alley pay and ten cent WeChat pay on those rails, um, you know now from a pure transaction perspective, you know, more transactions go through union pay in respect to mobile wallets than all of the rest of the plastic card ecosystem or card schemes globally, you know, 52 trillion in, in 2020, right, through, through Alipay and WeChat Pay alone. And, you know, plastic cards through all the other card schemes, about 36 trillion. So I guess China's, you know, if they want to have a dominant, you know, payment rails network for for uh, at least for card transactions and mobile wallets, you know, they're going to not turn away Russian business necessarily. But, um, you know, are you hearing any banks in the US talk about China's involvement from from the payment rails perspective? I have not heard US banks uh, talk about that. I think US banks are pretty cautious about commenting on this sort of thing, I, I know that um, you know the U.S. banks are very um, very concerned about sanctions and trying to get the sanctions rules right because the, the rules of yeah, the, yeah. The, the lists keep changing and the rules the, you know what exactly they have to do and they know they can get penalized if they um, get something wrong and of course the uh, so many of the sanction entities are sort of this like Russian doll. Uh, uh, situation with shell companies within shell companies within shell companies. So it's very difficult for the banks to, to keep up with that. Um, I know there was some talk with the, with the swift blockage that, you know, Russian banks can uh, work with banks in China and, and move payments that way. So it does seem like overall, you know, we we always feel like U.S. and its counterparties dominate the world of finance, but it does seem more and more like China is has a growing role, and the U.S. Uh, U.S. sanctions are not as you know quite as powerful as they once were. But as far yeah. as banks being concerned about China, I it's um yeah, it's it's just a a, a lot of banks just try to continue to work in cooperation with with banks in China. I don't think that that's something they're reconsidering at the moment. Yeah, um, it's interesting when I look at like the sanctions, obviously the ruble has been um, dramatically affected, but the $630 billion war chest that's spoken of that Russia stockpiled before invading Ukraine, a lot of, and it was it was three hundred and seventy billion seven years ago. So that indicates the focus that that has been um, put on on foreign holdings and gold. But a lot of those are offshore. Yeah, the, those foreign holdings are offshore. So getting access to that um, is is a challenge. The central bank, uh, well, the ruble lost half its value against the U.S. dollar after Russia annexed Crimea, and um, that. That cost the the Russian central bank 130 billion to stabilize the currency then. So I, I don't even know if it's possible for them to stabilize the currency right now. But 13% of its reserves are held in Chinese yuan. Mm. So at least we know now that it would appear that some of those funds are accessible. But um, it'll be interesting to sort of see how this this develops. Um, you know, it, you know, it, I think one of the really the challenges would be, you know, if you're a, a startup founder, you know, it's it's tough enough to run a startup 
in um, fintech these days, um, let alone being in a war-torn country or even remotely. But, um, you know, the working from home culture that we built during the pandemic, maybe do you think it will help some of these fintechs to, to sort of continue to operate despite the fact that, you know, what's going on? Oh, definitely. De- it definitely has. And, and in the companies that I did speak to that have some Ukrainian employees, um, that's definitely how they've rolled. They've, they've uh, you know, Revolut closed its uh, office in Cherkasy. And, uh, you know, as I said, 40 UpSWAT employees were moved from, uh, from Kiev into the country of Georgia. So basically they just had to replace any equipment that people weren't able to bring. But as long as they had Wi-Fi access, you know, being able to have, uh, you know, applications and, and work in the cloud, um, really, really helped the people who did evacuate, you know, early to restart their lives, you know, pick up again, you know, start working again, pay their rents, get their lives um, to some sort of normalcy again. So, you know, and, and that's part of, I think, the, the the event of the cloud and remote working, I think, is also part of why Ukraine has been such a um, a hot sort of hotbed for uh, tech workers because they can work anywhere in the world from Ukrainian cities. So, uh, you know, they were sort of almost an outsourcing post. Exactly. Uh, because of that. So did you see, um, cause internet obviously has been impacted in Ukraine, you know, telecommunications infrastructure, uh, you know, obviously power infrastructure has been attacked and so forth. Uh, but did you see what uh, SpaceX had done in respect to Starlink for Ukraine? I saw a little bit of it. Uh... So, you know, Starlink is this internet satellite constellation that SpaceX has been building over the last few years. They now account for about a quarter of all satellites in the night sky, are, are Starlink, uh, you know, internet satellites. And so they shipped a whole bunch of these Starlink terminals or satellite dishes, um, you know, to Ukraine. Um, I've seen at least three shipments that have, have gone in. Um, and these things can be powered actually from a cigarette lighter in a, in a car to, you know, a 240 volt power outlet um, and, of course, 110, um, and enabling, um, you know, people to continue to get access to the internet through, uh, you know, this satellite internet uh, connection. So even that is, um, you know, fairly new technology. It's still technically in beta. um, But, you know, we seem to see the world rallying uh, around this. Um, I can't imagine the pressure that's on, Putin to pull back from this and then, you know, what loss of face that might mean for him politically and so forth. Obviously, I'm not a geopolitical guy. I have been watching Ian Bremer. I don't know if you know of him, but um, for those... I saw one segment he did, yes. Yeah. Very interesting. Really, you know, Ian's a great analyst, um, you know, in terms of sort of the whole geopolitical situation. He's based here in New York, of course. Um, so, you know, if you if you want to sort of get a picture of what this all means for Putin, he's got a really good good take on that. Um, but, you know, uh, I, like where do you think this takes us in a few years' time? Do you think that this potentially, you know, with China and Russia partnering more in respect to this, do you see this creating um, more direct competition for networks like SWIFT, um, MasterCard and Visa, um, you know, in terms of global payments and global uh, infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, 
of course, my best case scenario is that Putin or, or, or the Russians are somehow forced or incented to pull out of Ukraine. And, you know, there's peace in that country again. I mean, I would just love to see that. But, you know, a lot of people, I think, including Ian, uh, do think that this could go on, this could just drag on for years and with the, the Russians just pounding Ukraine and Ukrainian fighters and, and civilians resisting. And uh, some of the videos of, of civilians marching up yeah, to Russian soldiers carrying these giant rifles have, have just been amazing. The, the, the courage of these people has just been so, so astonishing. Uh, but, you know, there is a worst case scenario in which Russia and its al- you know, apparent ally China become more powerful. They do, uh, you know, manage to achieve their goal. You know, Russia's talking about seizing Western assets of companies that are, um, you know, pausing their businesses wow. in the country. And, you know, they're sort of I think they're going to try to retaliate against the sanctions that the U.S. and other Western governments have imposed, and they're going to try to pay their debt in rubles. So I think the worst case is, you know, Russia and China continue to kind of fight back with their own sort of economic, you know, their own form of economic warfare and their own sort of uh, ideal of trying to replace the, I think they what they call the liberal um you know, democratic society that, that, that the U.S. and many uh, countries try to promote and try to get more and more... Um, Independence from the rest of the system, yeah. Well, and, and just more and more power over more right. of the countries and, you know, take over Taiwan and take over, you know, territories that they consider their own. Yes. And build, build their sort of anti-democratic uh, type of of uh, communities, types of government, and types of uh, financial systems. So you know, I hope all that doesn't happen. I hope we can fight it, but I, yeah. I, I think it's a possibility. Well, Russia and China have been working on their own independent ecosystems uh, for some time, particularly for trade. Um, we know that a lot of trade had already shifted to, to euros away from uh, petrodollars, for example, in terms of commodities trade. Um, you know, there's more foreign reserves being held in other currencies, as, as we talked about earlier. So, um, you know, China, China's got to be thinking about this as a dry run for Taiwan. Everyone's talking about that. Um, and, you know, their independence in terms of their own systems, um, you know, and, you know, trading on the Belt and Road. Um, Richard Turin, who I know um, you're familiar with, has talked a lot about the potential for the the new E1, ECMY, um, you know, to be used as a wallet or mechanism in the future on the Belt and Road for trade, giving them independence from the SWIFT system and so forth. So, I mean, you could see um, a bifurcation of, of the system as a result of these, these trends. And, um, you know, it, as you say, it depends how long they stay in there, right? If it goes and on the wild, for many years. The wild so card it, is cryptocurrency, you know, yeah. can... Can governments like the U.S. impose strict, you know, constrictions on cryptocurrency and make them observe, uh, make cryptocurrency exchanges and so forth observe our sanctions, or will cryptocurrency companies, 
you know, support many different players and become more of a mechanism for mm. payments and business that goes outside of any sort of government uh, restrictions. It was built for that decentralized purpose, wasn't it? You know, to circumvent the central bank system. Um, and, uh, you know, th there is evidence given that crypto's up from, from uh, its, uh, its uh, dip, um, you know, over the last couple of months, um, you know, it seemed to be some evidence supporting that. Well, listen, uh, um, you know, Penny, it's great to have you um, on the show. Thanks for giving us your update. What are you working on at the moment that we should be watching over at American Banker? Well, I'm currently, this is not a happy story, but I'm currently working on a story about a fintech that supports puppy mill loans. Uh, it actually makes puppy mill loans and how this is dragging its bank partner down. Its bank partner did not realize that. Wow. The, this was one of the types of loans it was supporting. And so actually they're, they're sort of rethinking this now and the bank may back away and uh, stop allowing at least that kind of loan, if not, if not all the loans that this FinTech is making. But, uh, you know, personally, I would like to see more of a crackdown on puppy mills and puppy mill loans. So um, it's something I, you know, I hope people will, start to recognize that that uh that that this needs to this is a problem that needs to oh we'll have to check it out yeah you know um there's definitely i think we should be like there, there there's this you know we talk about esg but ethical banking and transparent banking in respect to this you know we know that like cannabis businesses for example have had trouble getting um, banks to, to support them, even though it's, uh, um, you know, being decriminalized, uh, you know, federally now. Um, so, you know, it'd be interesting to sort of see how this sort of ethical considerations behind banking, especially as climate change starts to bite, sort of reframes the way banks think about the business they're doing. So, but Penny, thanks for joining us. And, um, you know, we'll be sure to, uh, to have you back on the show very soon. Sure. Thanks so much, Brett. Take care. Thanks all. That's it uh, for Breaking Banks this week. We'll see you again next week. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks. <laughs>